Welcome to Beyond the Frontline Lessons from Healthcare Leaders podcast. This season, we are discussing the realities of healthcare leadership during a crisis. We are your hosts, Dr. Linya Yang and Dr. Shanita Johnson. Let's dive in. welcoming Dr. George Waters, who is the senior cardiologist at Sturdy Memorial Hospital and the assistant clinical professor of medicine at Boston University School of Medicine. Hi, George. Welcome to our podcast. Hi, guys. Thanks for inviting me. We're so happy to have you here as we discuss the challenges that we encountered as healthcare leaders during the pandemic. And I know that you have done your fair share of leading during this crisis. And so we're excited to have you today. So we wanted to start with just some of the challenges you faced as cardiology procedures were placed on hold. Who knew at the beginning of this pandemic that we would have to place elective procedures on hold? What were the challenges that you had and how did you make that transition to telemedicine? How did you get your leadership to back you in these changes? Well, thank you, Vashita and, and uh, Linya. Um, thanks for letting me come today and share my perspective. Um, the beginning of the pandemic was a complete nightmare. And I think we were all learning on our feet as, as things transpired and unfolded. Um, and exactly like you said, it was incredibly difficult because of the postponement of procedures. And in cardiology, I'm a non-invasive cardiologist now, but my, most of my career has been invasive cardiology. And the inability to get diagnostic procedures done, catheterizations, um, uh, electrophysiology studies for workup of arrhythmias, et cetera, was incredibly difficult to try to make sure that our patients didn't um, you know, suffer any untoward consequences as a result of these delays. So we had to really thread that needle carefully um, and tried to triage patients to the highest risk patients. The highest risk patients still went for their procedures, but everyone else, if you, we could try to sit on you for any length of time, we did. And we, so overall we were pretty successful. With respect to telehealth and telemedicine, we were fairly reluctant, but we really felt we had no choice. And once again, we looked at it as sort of a means to an end, namely it allowed us to risk stratify patients, at least to some extent. Um, and just to make sure that the, the majority of our patients, we strive to get them stable. That's the first thing, right? So the majority of, our, of my patients, I have a very established practice. The majority of my patients were stable, right? In terms of their blood pressure control, their lipids, et cetera. So from that perspective, it was made things easier. The real challenges were trying to determine who was starting to decompensate and what I could actually do about it. That was a real challenge. Um, the other challenge, one of the other challenges that I had in my particular community, which is in the, this portion of southeastern Massachusetts on the Rhode Island border, uh, and because of the nature of my population, which is mostly or more elderly than not, um, was a certain degree of technophobia. <laughs> um, I wouldn't say that my, my population is composed solely of Luddites, but th these were the folks simply didn't have access to um, good Wi-Fi connections or broadband. A FIOS, et cetera. Uh, and they, if they did, they oftentimes had no facility at using laptops, cell phones, video, et cetera. They had to rely on their family members. So when we could use video, it was a godsend. It's astonishing how, how much you can see of 
in someone, especially for decompensated heart failure, you know, I was actually having patients hold their legs up and press on them to see how much edema they had. Or I was saying, okay, now shine the light on your neck. And I was examining their jugular venous distension and um, uh, looking at pulsations in their neck as I'm speaking to them and these types of things. So it was surprisingly useful. Um, but the problem was trying to treat these patients as an outpatient was very difficult. And we tried to keep them out of the emergency departments, but sometimes we just failed. There was no other way to do it. We'd have them come in and then get um, the parental therapy. Uh, so it was definitely a challenge. I'm sure all the other disciplines suffered the same um, with the same issues. Um, but we made through and I, I'm actually kind of astonished. Uh, even now, even, you know, what, we're 30 months in, um, even now I am still catching things and trying to get caught up. It's unbelievable. Things that we were, we were watching like the progression of a patient's aortic stenosis or making sure that their ascending aortic aneurysm hadn't changed significantly or um, monitoring their peripheral vascular disease, these types of things. Um, I'm going back and said, oh yes, I did that echo. I checked that I did. This. And I start going to the archive, it wasn't done. And we're like, oh my God. So the patients were all stable. Everybody was fine, but it was just, it was astonishing how time flew. And I'm sure you guys felt the same way, how time flew and how easily you could get distracted and or forget or think that, oh, I had done something a year ago when in actuality it was three years ago, that type of thing. Did you guys experience the same thing? I, I had, a, it was a nightmare for us. So we are literally still trying to play playing catch up. The other problem was that some of my older patients, especially if they they had their, the beginnings of cognitive decline, um, they would miss an appointment. Then they would forget about the follow up appointment, and if they didn't have didn't communicate it to their caregiver, child, family member, whoever, then things would get lost. Case in point, just this week. This morning, I saw a patient of mine, a 91-year-old gentleman who has clearly had worsening cognitive de decline still I saw him, and he simply forgot his follow-ups. So as it turns out, he's had multiple hospitalizations since that time with all the incurrent costs and potential for comorbidities. And he was just in with a urinary tract infection and, and the hospitalist physicians held his angiotensin receptor blocker with an ejection fraction of 30%. And the next thing you know, a week later, he's in with heart failure. So this kind of thing, this is, this is all the fallout of COVID that we're dealing with now. And this is why we're so unbelievably busy. We're incredibly busy right now. It's crazy. George, with all of that, you know, those moving parts so quickly, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you had to really turn on a dime. And as you said, you're trying to juggle patients and make sure that things didn't fall through. It was a lot, you know, yes. putting in different processes, new processes quickly in the middle of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. So pivoting a little bit to your leadership now, how did you make that a priority for your administration? What did you do to kind of convince them of what you needed and get that support? Well, it's, <laughs> that's an excellent question because they talk about moving parts. In the context of the pandemic, we had a sort of a caretaker CEO. So he steered through and we made a, you know, we were all working together with respect to the telehealth issues, et cetera. But then this past October, this past fall, we have a new administration. 
So we have a whole nother um, team who is very, 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 very committed to the expansion of the cardiology service line. And I can say for the first time in 20 years, um, the, the previous administrations always listened to us. They didn't always necessarily follow through, right? They would understand, look, they would, they would understand and commiserate with our issues, but say, you know, everybody else in the same boat, um, let's, you know, go forward the best we can with what we've got and muddle through. And then once the storm settles down, let's take a look at what we can really do to simplify things and streamline things. So what I've had to do is rely, I, I relied a great deal on my previous chief medical officer, who was very helpful and attentive. And I got, I got his ear, he understood what was going on. We were completing our MBA through the course of the pandemic. And so I instituted um, my executive uh, team consulting project project. We instituted that in the course of that to help with uh, heart failure readmissions. And so the, the, the uh, hospital helped with that, got that rolling, which was helpful. Uh, with, with respect to these other issues, a lot of that simply fell on us. So what we did as a, as a we looked inward as a group. So my, the, uh, my other partners, there are two of us, two of us that are employed, two other people that are employed with the, uh, as physicians for the hospital, and there's a private practice physician cardiologist, is as a group, we took a look at what we could do and what we needed, and we made it a point of really maintaining the lines of communication amongst ourselves, because we knew we were the ones that really understood what, what needed to be done, and we were the ones who implemented it. So with respect to, um, you know, for instance, making sure that things were, were followed through. Um, another thing that happened, another moving part was we changed our whole computer system in the context of all this, which in actuality helped. And the reason is we had to do a data dump to consolidate the old previous hospital's computer system with the, with the outpatient computer system all into one system which created an archive. And that in a way was actually a godsend because that forced us to go back and look at these things. So yes, it was somewhat time consuming, but we've gotten very facile with it and we're able to go through and find these things that I was talking about. So when I haven't seen a patient for a little while, one of the first things that I do is I create, I open up my note, I create the note and I'm using the, I'm leveraging the IT the information technology that we have to make sure that nothing is getting missed. And so my partners have done exactly the same thing. We've all looked at the existing system and we've gone into it and we dig in that archive and we go back and find everything as best we can. There will be some gaps and some holes, but we find the best we can to make sure that there's seamlessness and continuity of care. It's been a challenge, but we've been able to get it done. So it sounds like you've done a lot, not only as a cardiologist, as provider, but also kind of getting your point across to the administration. And I know you completed your MBA and then, you know, being at that hospital for a long time, you started to kind of think about applying for the CMO role, either right. there or at other institutions. So what really made you decide to pursue this? And then what roadblocks did you kind of encounter in the process and then after the process? And uh, what made me decide to do it was because I wanted to, especially after I had two decades of experience, um, I wanted to be, I had, in a lot of ways, I'd been considered the go-to guy in a lot of respects for cardiology services. And during my medicine residency, I was chief medical resident at Boston University. 
um, and had a big role in teaching, but also in instruction in terms of, of uh, procedural instruction and this type of thing. And then early on in my career at my current institution, I was still teaching at Boston University, teaching the fellows, teaching medical students, et cetera. And I've always loved that component of my, or that part of my role. So I was, I had been doing that to a certain extent with the hospitalists and with the primary care physicians within the institution. I've been doing that for years. I've done, I don't know, half a dozen or 10 grand rounds over the years, um, talking about different topics. I'm, I'm always the person that people can talk to about, oh, and what's the, um, what can you tell me about uh, dual antiplatelet therapy uh, in the context of um, stent placement or whatever? I mean, do you know, what can you tell me about fish oil? Uh, what, what have you? So people have known they could always contact me and talk to me about these things. So, and I enjoy it because it makes me dive into it. And as you guys know, we've, we're big fans, of the deep dive, you know, um, I've always enjoyed doing that. I did it with COVID. I've done it with the cardiac complications of COVID. I've done it with a host of different topics. And I thought that as chief medical officer, I'd really be able to explore that part of my career, something that I really wanted to do and get to step back a little bit from the day-to-day -day rat race and instead immerse myself in a way that could expand my role in the institution, but also um, help to lead with authority as we discussed in, in business school. So um, that was one of the principal things I wanted to do. And I had approached the previous, the, our original CEO years ago about the job, but she didn't want me to take it because she said, she said to me, and I quote, what a waste of clinical talent which meant I was an, an important cog in her machine. And I, I looked at it, you know, two ways. It was, a, a, it was flattering, um, but it was also kind of like, hmm, you want to keep me where I am. Um, so when the, the, our, our chief medical officer retired, our most recent chief medical officer retired, I made it very clear to our CEO that I would like to be considered for the role. I had just completed my MBA, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he came, he brought me in. Well, he was also, remember, this is the transition period to the new CEO. So he said, he came, he actually called me. I thought this was actually extremely nice of him. It was very kind of him. He called me and said, hey, can you come in and meet? And he goes, George, I want to let you know, I'm going to give the job to this other uh, person in our institution because he's already been doing an important role, which was quality management issues, uh, particularly some stuff surrounding COVID. And he'd been very immersed in a lot of the regulatory aspects. And the CEO was concerned that he wanted that continuity, have that degree of continuity for the new CEO, instead of I would be learning things from scratch, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, I appreciate that. That was very kind of you to let me know this. And thank you. I said, I disagree with your decision. <laughs> uh, I made it very clear. Uh, I, I said, I think, you know, I, I, I mean, this isn't rocket science, right? I mean, you know. We can handle this stuff, but I said, I, that's fine. I completely get that. With the new CEO though, the new CEO has completely looked to myself and my other partner as the expert leaders for the development of a new cardiology service line. And she's gonna build it from scratch. And we are just over the moon excited about this because this is something we've been talking about. I, I personally been talking about for more than 15 years and she's actually gonna start putting the money where the mouth is and really get this rolling. So. We've already been um, one of my colleagues, who's uh, one of the nurse managers, who I've been a uh, who's been in, was instrumental and helpful to me in my MBA, has been a friend of mine for 20 years. Um, had raised some very good points. So we're actually undergoing a, a complete reorganization of our of our department and of our service line to exploit the synergies we have 
because we have them. They've just been so, everything has been so utterly siloed in the institution. The right hand, the left hand didn't know what was going on. It's as if there's no corpus callosum, you know, there's nobody knew what was happening. So um, now we are literally in the infancy right now, in the last two weeks, in the infancy of creating a new cardiovascular, the very beginnings of a cardiovascular center where we're unifying cardiac rehabilitation services with our EKG services with um, so, so that's both inpatient and outpatient with all of our um, echo and stress testing capabilities. And this is just the first shot because the next part of it is going to be the incorporation of our arrhythmia service. And we've already been in discussions with several of the large teaching institutions in, in, the, in Eastern Massachusetts about um, seeing what, they, what synergies they can bring to our institution, you know, advanced heart failure, uh, additional EP, um, uh, certainly invasive cardiology approaches and, and um, interventional cardiology approaches, uh, both coronary and peripheral, et cetera. So this, it's really, really exciting time. And it's really nice because um, the, the CEO, one of the first things she did was she hired an outside consulting firm to come in and do an analysis. Now, when she arrived at our institution, I gave her a copy of my marketing analysis I did for a marketing course with some edits, slightly edited. And I also gave her um, a copy of the most recent information from the CHIA, which in Massachusetts, it's the Center for Healthcare Information and Analytics, uh, which she wasn't aware of because she's from the West Coast. I gave her that. I also gave her a copy of a paper that I wrote. I, I did a small um, uh, report for the previous CEO about physician compensation. And I did an analysis uh, of physician compensation rates um, from a variety of sources. And I gave her all, I gave her a stack about <laughs> that much documentation and she was blown away. And I said, anything you do to help, anything you do to help. Well, she really has appreciated that. And so she understands um, that I'm committed. She understands that I have a unique uh, set of training I'm not your average cardiologist because um, I have that uh, that business side, and we had a Zoom meeting with the with the um, the uh, consulting firm. We did a spectacular job. It was absolutely beautiful what they did, and and she was private messaging me <laughs> in the in the Zoom meeting, and she goes, "What do you think?" question mark And I said, "Can you get me these numbers? I need to chew on this data." And she was like all tickled. And then in, in, at the exact same moment, within a 60 seconds, the chief strategy officer text private messages me and said, oh, look, at is this da, da, da. And I said, well, I said, sometimes it's not good to be right because this, everything the consulting company had said, I had said, not as much detail, but I said the same things in, with the course of my reports and my analysis. So it was, it was fantastic to get that validation. And it was very the first, time along, first time I got any, really, I mean, real, you know, and, um, and understanding that I, I have something to add, I have something to offer. So um, it's an exciting time. It's a really exciting time for me. Um, and I think we're gonna really, we can really create something great. That's so really rewarding, George. I mean, you know, congratulations on expansion, your vision coming to fruition. It's not often that we see that. 
And I think sometimes yeah. medicine, it can be lost. Um, you know, so congratulations. You know, as, um, as you think back on your leadership journey, is there anything you wished maybe you had done differently or maybe done sooner or maybe not have done at all? And what do you think you're going to do in the future? I wish I'd done my MBA sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, it has been a godsend. It's been one of the best things I have done. Well, was it, I, you know, part of it was the time in my life. It was the right thing to do. But I wish, I wish I could have had a magic time machine or a crystal ball to say, oh, do this 10 years earlier. Um, because I think I could have really forced some change sooner. That's one thing I would have done. I wish I could have done that earlier. Um, going forward, it's kind of interesting because I sort of feel like the sky's the limit because right now, when I, when I finished my fellowship training, there was a lot of discussion at the time. Oh, you're never going to get a job, right? No cardiology jobs. Well, in the course of my MBA and it, doing my, one of my many deep dives concluded, oh, the average age of cardiology in the United States as of 2019 was 57 years old that the fellowship programs in the United States had not expanded. So they're simply at replacement level, whereas the population has grown and not only that, but the disproportionate number of older patients who as a general rule of thumb need cardiovascular services. So you could see that the gap was already starting to, it was starting to form and, and widen. So now what's happened is um, other places have come a courting, as they say. <laughs> so, um, I have friends all over town and, um, it's been very nice, um, that, uh, you know, people have expressed interest in me as an individual, both in terms of my cardiovascular training, et cetera, and my experience. Um, but also the fact that I've got business school training. So, um, we'll see what the, I mean, it's, it's the first time in a very long time. I really feel like the sky is the limit. In terms of the, the uh, I would love to do a chief medical officer job, but I'm, unfortunately I'm kind of constrained. Uh, one of the problems I have right now is my oldest is starting college in August and I've got a 16 year old and a 13 year old. And that would be kind of a difficult time. I mean, I know kids are resilient, but um, I also have a 86 year old mother-in-law that lives nearby that my wife is the principal caretaker of. So um, I'm, I'm, const- I'm constrained by my geography. And so there are only so many of these jobs. And as we've seen from our colleagues, um, I know we could make a call. I could, get a new, I could get a CMO job tomorrow. I mean, literally, but I'd have to move. And um, at this moment, it's not the cards, not the cards me. So um, if something happened, you know, tomorrow at a local institution and, you know, thinking about that might be a different story, but I love doing cardiology. I love doing, I love taking care of patients. I get a great sense of um, satisfaction from doing that. I don't want to be away from it completely. Uh, I would just like to hybridize my ideal job in the future would be a hybrid um, job where I could still practice cardiology, still be on top of things, but then use all these other, you know, tools in my bag, you know, so to speak. Well, this is great, George. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. So if you had to give us three takeaways for our listeners, what would what takeaways would you give us? I would say the three things I would say would be certainly with us and the thing that I have to do for myself is to stop, <laughs> stop and listen. 
Okay. Um, listen to the people around you. Understand their needs as best you can. Try to put yourself in their shoes. This another thing would be don't give up. Be persistent. Be dogged if necessary. Tenacious. Grab that bone and don't let go. And do your best to be patient, which is incredibly difficult. I think that's the hardest thing to do, at least for me personally, because after years and years and years of doing the same thing and teaching and what have you, you forget that, you know, somebody new is here or someone, and you don't know what their, what their clinical experience has been or what their, what their uh, training experience has been like. And you have to be as patient and as understanding as you possibly can be. And that's hard when you've got time pressure, when you've got, um, you're being pulled in 15,000 different directions. You've got to really make a point of stopping and centering yourself, even spending five minutes just sitting in a, in a closed room with a, with a door closed and the computer off and no distractions, your eyes closed and white noise, you know? Um, something that we were taught in our coaching sessions many times. I think that's crucially important. I think if you do those things, if you are patient and you listen and you are persistent, I think you can achieve anything. This has been amazing hearing your journey and, you know, just the past two years in the pandemic, what you've been able to accomplish. So Dr. Waters, if our listeners want to reach out to you, mm -hmm. how can they best reach you? Uh, well, the best way to do you, they could always email me, you know, just feel free to email at, uh, at geo waters, G-E-O-W-A-T-E-R-S at Gmail. You can always do that. Uh, and if they are ever in the, in Southeastern Massachusetts, I'm um, the senior cardiologist at Sturdy Memorial Hospital in Attleboro, Massachusetts. And you can reach me at gwaters at sturdymemorial.org. Both ways that you can get me. Thank you so much. Thanks Thank guys. You. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Good to see you both. Good to see you too. Bye. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, Beyond the Frontline Lessons from Healthcare Leaders. Please like, share, and subscribe. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Health Leadership Brain Trust and let us know if you have any topics that you would like to hear about on future podcasts. See you next episode.